so uh, I, I, I'm a Jesus fanatic, you know. I'm a Jesus fan. And so this morning, let's have that kind of energy as we celebrate the biggest victory of all, and that's the victory over sin and death that Jesus brought us. And uh, this song says, we are yours. Will you stand up and let's sing together?
right, you can have a seat. Good morning. It's a joy for us to begin worship today in celebration of baptism. Uh, when you come to know Jesus as Savior and receive him into your heart, then that next step is to confess him with your mouth. And we are so delighted to share in that experience with Kimberly Trail. And uh, Kimberly has been in our, my Wednesday night classes, and as we've talked, she's come to the point in her uh, faith journey where she knows she's accepted Christ as Savior, and she's ready now to declare that faith uh, openly. And we rejoice with her. Her husband, uh, Adam Trail, and her daughter, Sadie, are also uh, attending our church, and we're glad that this family is here. And if you are family or friends of Kimberly's, would you just stand in her honor right now? Good time to celebrate with her. Amen. We are glad you're here. Thank you for being a part of this service. Uh, Kimberly, when you're baptized, it's a way of saying, I believe in Jesus, I'm going to follow Jesus, and he's going to be Lord of my life. And the way that the Bible says that we make that confession is to say, Jesus is Lord. Will you confess before these people, Jesus is Lord? On your confession of faith in Christ, I baptize you, my sister, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Good morning and welcome to First Baptist Church. We are so glad that you're here to worship with us this morning. If you are a guest with us here this morning, um, there's a card in the pew back in front of you that you can fill out and take to the Welcome Center um, after the conclusion of the service. And we have a gift that we would love to share with you and um, love to meet you. Um, so this morning I was going to announce about our trunk or treat. Our trunk or treat is in two weeks on Halloween. So not next Monday, but the Monday after, and we are asking for candy donations. So individually wrapped candy, um, at any one of the donation bins located around the church. We have one by the welcome center and out here, um, by the library and downstairs. And then we are also, we have a goal to have 50 trunks for our trunk or treat. So if you are interested in hosting a trunk for trunk or treat, you can sign up after this service at the welcome center. And we would love to have you join us for that. Also, we have our parent child commissioning coming up. Um, if you have recently had a child and are interested um, in participating in that service, you can go to the church website and register for a luncheon and then the service um, that will take place on November 6th and then the week following. And we would love to have you um, participate in that. Um, so let's pray together and then continue in worship. Lord, thank you so much for um, this fall weather that we've been having and a reminder of your blessings to us. Father, we pray that as we continue in worship, our hearts would just be, um, um, our hearts would be in tune to you and what you have for us today, Father. Um, I pray that we just hear what you have and we go from this place um, and continue to spread your light within our community. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Will you stand and let's sing together. I got saved. 
gladness that pours from Emmanuel's veins. The sinner was plunged beneath the flood and got saved. Since then I walk in forgiveness. All of my guilt was erased. The chains of the past are broken at last I got saved oh I got saved I'm undone by the mercy of Jesus I'm undone by the goodness of the Lord I'm restored and made right he got a hold of my life I've got Jesus I'm good I want something right there. Let's look at that bridge again. It says, the love of God gave me his pardon. Are you happy about that? <laughs> the love of God won't let me stay the same. The love of God calls me up higher. His will is stronger. That's why I got saved. Come on, now sing it like you mean it. Here we go. The love of God gave me his pardon. The love of God won't let me stay the same. Mercy 
in our lives. We've seen you do greatness in our, in our church, our country. We, Lord, we're calling for you to do it again. Oh, Lord, make a change in us. Sing along with us.
Your promise still stands. Great is your faithfulness, faithfulness. I'm still in your hands. This is my confidence. You've never failed. Your promise still stands. Great is your faithfulness. for you this morning. We've seen the great things that you've done, the way you fulfilled your promises, the way that you've taken care of us. And Lord, we don't want to take that for granted. We want to thank you for that. We want to be grateful for that. Lord, we come before you this morning seeking your heart, seeking your face. Lord, I pray that as Dr. Cox brings the message this morning, you will pierce us pierce our hearts, pierce our inner being so that when we leave this place, we will be more like you. Make us like you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Good morning. Good to see you today. Good morning to all you Tennessee fans who promised you'd be in church this morning if certain things happened uh, yesterday. And uh, if there are other commitments that you made to God uh, concerning wh- how certain field goals went or whatever, we got our offering boxes back there on the walls. <laughs> you promised to teach Sunday school or go on a mission trip, staff member will be at the Welcome Center today. And we would be glad to help you fulfill those commitments that you made to God <laughs> last night. Glad you're here today. Hey, I want to encourage you to come back tonight at 6 o'clock. We have a member meeting, um, and we encourage all members to be here. Uh, We'll have some great things as we just celebrate what God has been doing in our church. We have testimonies by church members, reports on mission trips, a report from our lead pastor search team, vote on new members, good time of celebration. And I encourage you to be here at 6 o'clock here in the worship center, all of our members to come. Anyone's welcome, but especially members to come uh, tonight at 6. I want to pray over some things uh, uh, and lead you in prayer some things. Would you join me right now, please, in prayer? Father in heaven, uh, several things on my heart that I just want to pray about and lead our congregation to pray about this morning. First of all, Lord, I want to pray uh, for students who are on their fall retreat um, in uh, western North Carolina this morning. We have over 100 students and leaders that are there this weekend, and as they're worshiping there this morning, their guests and friends of kids who are there with them, I pray that there'll be people who receive Jesus as Savior, even as I pray that same thing here. 
I pray, Lord, that uh, our youth, our, our students will be strengthened in their faith and be champions for you in their schools. So we pray over that today. Lord, um, we experienced some storms this week while we were gathered here praying in prayer meeting Wednesday night. Uh, storms came through our area and did damage, and we pray for those who had damage. We thank you that, to my knowledge, there was no loss of life, there was no personal injury, and we thank you for that. Lord, we're amazed at your power. If uh, just the something that you created can be so powerful, how powerful you are, O oh Lord. And we stand in awe of your greatness and of your power. Lord, we're reminded in that same way to pray for those who are in Florida who are still recovering from um, Hurricane Ian. And we pray, Lord, for Southern Baptist disaster relief teams from 17 states who are there ministering in the name of Jesus. We thank you for the 45 people so far through their witness who have accepted Jesus as their Savior. Lord, you bring good things out of bad, and we praise you for that. And Lord, we thank you for the 160,000 meals that are being served there each day through these 17 uh, disaster relief teams. We pray for them. Lord, um, I want to pray uh, for the family of Dennis Greer, one of our faithful and good deacons who served you, who was sitting in this service last Sunday morning with his wife, Anne. And uh, Thursday, you called him home to be with you. And Lord, we grieve his, our, our loss, and we pray for Anne, and we pray for his family. And uh, we thank you for his faithful life of service to you. And we thank you that we will see him again if we put our faith in Jesus. And so, oh Lord, thank you for the hope that we have in heaven through Jesus. Lord, I want to praise you that Kimberly came to be baptized this morning. I pray for her as she grows in the Lord. And, and this church is a home and a family to her. And I pray that her baptism would be a witness to others who are seated here today who would need to say, I need to do that. I need to openly declare my faith in Jesus and my identification with him. And I pray to that end in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Today I began a three-week series of sermons from the book of Titus. Uh, Titus is one of the letters that Paul wrote. Of our 27 books in the New Testament, 13 of them are letters that Paul wrote. Isn't that amazing that they have been preserved for 2,000 years? Do you have letters from your great-grandparents? Maybe you got letters back 100 years, old brittle letters that you've kept. These letters, through wars and famines and centuries, have been preserved. That testifies to their, to their inspiration that God has preserved His Word, these letters. Of the 13 letters that Paul wrote, books of our New Testament, they are arranged in our Bibles by letters to churches and then letters to individuals longest to shortest in each category. That's how they're arranged in your Bible, from longest to shortest. And so Titus is one of those four, there are nine letters to churches, longest to shortest, then four letters to individuals. And uh, Titus is one of those four letters to the individuals, and it's the next to the last. It's one of the shorter books in the Bible, has three brief chapters. We're going to spend three weeks, Lord willing, going through this book, one chapter each week. 
Titus is one of three of those four, of those four letters to individuals. Three of them are called the pastoral letters because they were written to younger pastors. Paul wrote First and Second Timothy and Titus to Timothy and Titus who were his missionary associates that he left in locations to pastor churches. And Titus is one of those. And the theme of this letter, I believe, is a phrase that is repeated eight times. It is, do good. Paul is urging Titus to do good and to teach the people where he is on the island of Crete. That's where the island in the Mediterranean where Paul has left Titus and where Titus is serving. Teach them to do good. Let me show you that phrase before we go through chapter 1, verse by verse today. Let's just get an overview, and I want to show you on the screen, we'll show you here the eight places where this phrase is that you can see this theme. In verse 8, it says that uh, uh, elders must be those who love what is good. Chapter 1, verse uh, four, uh, 16, it says that those who are false teachers are unfit for doing anything good. In chapter 2, uh, verse Three, it says, teach the older women that they teach them to do what is good. In uh, chapter 2, verse 6, it says of younger men that set them an example by doing what is good. And then in chapter 2, verse 14, it says to, that uh, we are to be eager to do what is good. Chapter 3, verse 1, be ready to do whatever is good. Chapter 3, verse 8, be careful to devote yourselves to doing what is good. And chapter 3, verse 14, learn to devote yourselves to doing what is good. Do you get the idea that Paul wants us to do what is good? That's the theme of this letter, so we're going to explore how we can be a positive influence for good in the name of Jesus Christ. Now, that was especially important because... Crete, where Titus lived, was not a very good place, apparently. Let me show you that. Again, we're getting just the overview before we start through chapter 1. In chapter 1, verse um, 13 and 14, Paul says, or excuse me, 12 and 13, one of Crete's own prophets has said, Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. Wouldn't you hate to work for the Chamber of Commerce of Crete, you know? <laughs> They just, they don't have a good reputation, do they? He's, he's quoting Epimenides, one of the writers that came from Crete. And he says, one of their own says, they're always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. Another historian whose writings we have, Plutarch, said of, of Cretans, Cretans stick to money like bees stick to honey. You know, they just had a bad reputation. So much so that the word Cretan became a synonym for a liar or a cheat. Oh, he's just a, he's a Cretan. And so... Wow, this was not a great place to serve. And so what we want to look at in this series is how can we do what is good in a not-so-good world? Folks, some elements of our culture are just not so good, are they? And sometimes we sort of get negative and, and we fall into that. How can we be positive? How can we be a force to good? How can we be a, 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 a different from our culture and a good influence on it? You, you know, God wants Christians in bad places. We send missionaries to bad places. We don't stay away because, oh, that's dangerous. Oh, those people are bad. No, we send missionaries there just like Paul sent Titus there because we believe we need to infiltrate bad places. And it's true of workplaces as well, maybe where you work. It's just not a good Christian environment. And from time to time, I have 
church members who will come to me and say, would you pray for me that I can, can get out of where I work? I'd like to work for a Christian organization because, man, it's just the language is bad and the, the morality is bad. And, and I understand that, and God's will may be for you to work for a Christian organization. We need people like that. But let me tell you, we also need people who work in bad places, who shine a light in dark places. And so wherever you're working or wherever you're in school, we need Christians there. Paul left Titus in Crete even though it was a bad place because he said the gospel can change. And we must be more concerned with the propagation of our faith than the preservation of our faith. Sometimes we make it about ourselves. We want to preserve our, our, our purity and holiness and, and dignity. And God says, man, I want you to be in Crete. Because that's where it's needed. So we're going we're gonna to see how can we, in the world in which you live, be a force for good. So chapter 1 is about doing good at church. Chapter 2 about doing good at home. We're going to talk about your home life next week. Chapter 3 about doing good in the world. We're talking about your citizenship the third week. Today, though, we begin. Chapter 1 is about doing good at, home, at church. And so one of the first things that we can do one of the, the best things we can do to be a positive influence in our world is to be in church, to serve God in church. The church is God's lighthouse for good in a not-so-good world. And you want to make a difference in our world? Yeah, there are a lot of ways you could make a difference. You could go into politics. We need Christian politicians. But let me tell you the best way you can make a difference in a not-so-good world. Be a part of and support and build up a local church because the church is God's plan for witnessing to and changing the world. And so if you want to make a difference in the world, get connected in church. This is about doing good at church. So with that introduction, let's look at chapter 1. It's a letter, so Paul, they didn't put the, who it was from at the end like we do. They put who it was from at the beginning. Makes a lot more sense, I think. So the first word is Paul. And here he describes himself, a servant or a slave of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ to further the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness in the hope of eternal life which God who does not lie, God does not lie. Remember what Crete's like? God who does not lie promised before the beginning of time and which now at his appointed season he's brought to light through the preaching entrusted to me by the command of God our Savior to, and here's to here the letter is to, verse 4, to Titus, my true son in our common faith. Timothy and Titus were like Paul's sons in the ministry. He loved them. Titus was especially Paul's troubleshooter. Paul sent Titus to tough situations. When there was, in the letters to Corinth, we learned that when there were problems at Corinth, and you read the Corinthian letters, there were a lot of problems in that church, and so he sent Titus there, it says, and to, to teach them. And then when they took an offering from that church and others in Greece, he sent Titus to take that offering to the poor Jewish believers in Judea. Titus was his associate and especially his troubleshooter. And so he says to Titus, my true son in our common faith, grace and peace from God the Father in Christ Jesus our Savior. And he says in verse 5, the reason I left you in Crete. So if you want to know the historical background, this takes place, it has to take place after the end of Acts. When Acts ends, Acts is the story in the last part of Paul's journeys. And Paul is in prison in Rome. But we think Paul was released from that imprisonment 
then took Titus and left Timothy and left him at Ephesus. Titus left him at Crete. He made another missionary journey. And so after the book of Acts ends, maybe he got to go to Spain to the west also, but we know he went there, and he left Titus in Crete. So now he's writing to them after that. The reason I left you in Crete was that you might put in order was what was left unfinished and appoint or ordain elders in every town as I directed you. So part of Titus' job was to ordain local church leaders in every church, building up those churches of Crete that had been established when they were there together on that missionary journey. Now, I've had people ask me, uh, who come from other churches and other denominations, why don't we have elders in our church? The instructions here are to ordain elders in every time. Tell my answer is we do have elders. Our elders are our pastors. There are three words for local church leaders in the New Testament, and we believe these three words are used interchangeably. They are elder, which is the Greek word presbyteros, presbyterians, especially identify with this word, they have elders. There is overseer or bishop. It is the Greek word episkopos. Episcopalians and others have bishops or overseers. And there is the word pastor. So these three are used interchangeably. They mean the same thing. Baptists usually use the word pastor because Episcopalians and Presbyterians came for us. and They'd already latched on to those words, I suppose. But it would be just as accurate to, t- to say that I'm your lead elder or lead overseer. And Todd is a worship elder or worship overseer as a worship pastor. Let me show you those, that interchangeable use of these three words in 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. To the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder and a witness of Christ's sufferings who will share in the glory to be revealed. Be pastors or shepherds, it may say in your translation, the Greek word poimen, translated pastors in Ephesians 4.11. Shepherds here, you You elders, be pastors of God's flock that is under your care, watching over them are being good overseers. That's the word episkopos. So here in these two verses, you have all three of those words used interchangeably. And so uh, our elders or our pastors or our overseers, any term would be correct. So we believe there are two biblical offices for leading a church, pastors or overseers or bishops, and deacons. We ordain those two. So in Philippians 1.1, it says, Paul and Timothy, Timothy was with him at that time, servants of Christ Jesus to all God's holy people in Christ at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons. Or he could have said the pastors and the deacons or the elders. If, if they're different offices, why does he leave elders out? He gives qualifications for elders. That's the only office he gives qualifications for. Why would he not leave them out? Well, he didn't leave them out because they're all the same thing. In Ephesians 4.11, it says God has given to the church pastors. Doesn't say he's given elders. Doesn't say he's given overseers. Where are they? Well, they're right there also because those three words are interchangeable. So now... Back in Titus 1, he gives the qualifications for an elder in verses 6 through 9. Now, this is an important passage in the life of our church because in the next five to seven months, you may be voting on a new lead elder, pastor, or overseer. If you're new to our church, um, I'm uh, 
going to retire from this position after 28 years at the end of August next year, about 10 months from now. We have a lead pastor search team, and they're at work on that. And our plan is to have a three- to four-month overlap or transition period of leadership. And so that means they got five or six months. And uh, so that means you've got five or six months to pray. And I want to call you to pray for that person who will be in this role and that you'll have to decide on. And that could be sooner than that. God's sovereign. You know, I'm not boxing in our, our search team by telling you that timeline. I'm just giving you a time to pray. Could be sooner. We'll make that work. Could be later. We'll make that work. But I'm saying to you sometime in five to eight months, four to eight months, you're going to be voting on a new lead pastor. So you need to understand this passage. This is what you need to be praying for now. Now, you won't be able to discern all of these things that we're going to look at in a brief few times of meeting. That's why you really need to be praying for that search team, that they'll have the discernment, and you need to be praying that God would send this kind of person because he's the sovereign one who can guide you. But you need to be praying for these things. So here's what he says in verse um, 6. An elder must be blameless. That's the general word of qualification. Now, the word blameless does not mean perfect, of course. No person is perfect. You never find a perfect person. The word blameless means, as one translation has it, above reproach. Or another translation has of good report. It means that, that uh, uh, the character of these people is generally above reproach, is blameless. So he's to be blameless in three areas. Number one, blameless in family leadership. Verse 6, an elder must be blameless, the husband of but one wife, a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. And so the family leadership is a proving ground for church leadership. They're connected. Most of you who hire, you, don't, you can't look at people's family when you hire them, but for a lead pastor, when you call a lead pastor, that's an important element. The second area of uh, blamelessness must be blameless in character and conduct, in character, verses 7 and following. Since an overseer. Do you see the interchangeableness of these two words? He started out calling him an elder or presbyteros, and now he calls him an overseer or bishop or episkopos. Same, same role. Since an overseer manages God's household, he must be blameless, not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. Rather, he must be hospitable, one who loves what is good, who is self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. Those, I would say, refer to the word character, must be uh, blameless in character. Did you notice there's the first occurrence of our key phrase in this book, one who loves what is good. There are requirements, uh, qualifications for a bishop in Timothy as well as in Titus. This is one of the phrases that's unique to Titus. Why? Because Crete was just not a real good place. And so he says, you must be one who contrasts to that culture, and you must be one who's a positive force, because Crete's not a very good place. So this person must be one who loves what is good. The third area of blamelessness is that he must be blameless in doctrine, or that is what he believes and what he teaches in doctrine. Verse 9 
He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. You need to be praying that God sends someone who is blameless in family leadership, blameless in character and conduct, and is blameless in doctrine and teaching. Now, the rest of the chapter turns the other side from good leadership to bad leadership, from good influence to bad influence. The rest of the verses that we're going to look at in Titus 1 are about false teaching, and Paul warns the, uh, Titus about the danger in the church of false teaching. I got to thinking about that this week as I was reading and preparing this passage, and I began to think, I really think we underestimate how much the New Testament warns about the danger of false teaching. It's a big deal in the New Testament. I, I tried to count, to my count, 22 of the 27 books in the New Testament warn in some place about false teaching. There are five that maybe I didn't find in my quick survey or thinking through them. Uh, maybe they don't, but at least 22 of the 27 books. That's a pretty big deal, isn't it? So maybe we don't talk about that enough. The Bible is very concerned about the purity of teaching in churches because here's the whole idea. We're in a culture that is, is straying and is becoming worse and worse, just like Crete. And so we've got to contrast to that, and we must be able to teach the truth. And in this idea of being good, what we're going to see in the rest of these verses is that truth and goodness are connected. We can't be a force for good if we compromise, if we don't teach the truth. Truth produces goodness. He's going to say these false teachers are unfit for doing any good because they don't believe the truth. You get the connection between truth and goodness here? So one of the best things we can do is, what can I do in my world? We can hold forth like a lighthouse the truth. And truth is an effect of goodness. All right, let's see it in these verses. Verse 10, for there are many rebellious people. So here's characteristics of false teaching. They don't, first of all, they're rebellious. They don't submit to the church's authority. They don't submit to the authority of the Bible. They are insubordinate. They're rebellious, want to go their own way. They're full of meaningless talk. And they are deceptive. You get those, those characteristics, rebellious, full of meaningless talk and deception, especially those of the circumcision group. Now, the circumcision group were those who were saying, they were from a Jewish background, and saying to be saved, you've got to believe in Jesus, but you've also got to add adherence to the Mosaic law, the key piece of which for males was circumcision. And so it is saying you've got to add some other legalistic requirements to that. Here's the thing about false teaching. We often think of false teaching as coming from the left, and that's certainly true in our culture. There is progressive Christianity, it's called, that's the label for it, progressive Christianity, that is liberal, that moves to the left, that and it is saying today, especially in the area of what the Bible says about sexuality and gender, and it is compromising on those issues. That's a danger of false teaching to the left that we have to hold forth the truth about. But what I want you to see from this verse is, and, and realize in our culture it's true as well, there's also a danger of false teaching to the right. And that is these to the right were very conservative, but they were adding legalistic requirements to what you had to do to be saved. We have cults in our uh, day today 
the Mormon church is the largest of them, they're very moral, they're very conservative. It's not that they've become liberal, it's not a danger of false teaching to the left, which we often think of, and it's certainly there, but like this circumcision group, they're very family-oriented, very moral, but they have that they are not teaching the true gospel. Do you see what I'm saying there? There's those dangers in both directions, and that's what he's talking about here. So what is to happen? Within the church, false teaching in the church must be silenced or rebuked. That We're going to see both of those words in the next three verses here. Now, he's not talking about out in culture. We don't try to silence culture. Or, uh, they have freedom of speech. But in the church, false teaching must be Silence and rebuke. Verse 11, they must be silenced because they're disrupting whole households by teaching things they ought not to teach, and that for the sake of dishonest gain. And then these verses that I shared earlier, one of Crete's own prophets have said, Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. This saying is true, verse 13. Therefore rebuke them sharply so that they will be sound in the faith. So he uses two words for what our response is to be. We're to silence that, to rebuke that. So let me share with you, in our church, I, I don't think that we have false teaching in our church. You may be thinking, why is he talking so much about this? You think we got some false teaching in our church? I really don't. I don't think we have false teaching in our church. But I grew up on a farm, and I learned that it's a whole lot easier to close the gate before the cows get out than to chase them after they get out. People don't like you chasing them through their kiddie pools and their clotheslines. That's another story I can tell you about another time. But let me just tell you, it's true, okay? Easier to close the gate before the... So here, here's what we have in our bylaws that we just review, revised last year. That anyone who teaches anything in our church other than our normal curriculum that we provide, which is Lifeway curriculum, which we, we pretty much trust. It comes from, uh, from a solid source uh, and, and so that's sort of our default. But if you teach anything else in our church, in a connection group, in a women's ministry or Bible study, in a children's, in a student retreat, whatever it may be, then you need to get that approved by the person the lead pastor designates. And so what I'm sharing with you, and I know this is sort of new for you, but we're closing gates before cows get out because that's what the Bible tells us to do. So if you're teaching any kind of curriculum or study, you need to get that a video series that you want to do. Some of our connection groups want to do a video series for a short time in a, a connection group. That's fine. You need to get that approved in advance. If it's adults by Daniel McKenzie or if it's students by Tim Hensick or if it's children or preschoolers by, by Megan Clayton. Because we are overseers with a responsibility to oversee the teaching of the church, and that's what this whole passage is concerned about. So we're not trying to, to make you to do stuff and be controlling. We just got to guard what's taught here. And, of course, usually most of the things that you choose are going to be great to teach, but there's got to be some overseeing. So don't say, hey, they're trying to control everything I do. Just, just say, hey, I want our church to be teaching truth. And so that I just want to share with you that step of what we're doing to do exactly what it says here um, about false teaching. He goes on to say in verse 15, or in verse 14, pay no attention to Jewish myths or to merely human commands of those who reject the truth. So false teachers always get off base because they, they add something to or take away from this book. 
So they added Jewish myths. We don't know exactly what that means, but the best that scholars can determine is they were taking maybe uh, uh, Old Testament characters that it doesn't tell us much about and filling in stories about them, making up stories, and they were unbiblical stories, and teaching merely human commands. All the cults, they either add to or take away from this book. They'll narrow the canon and say, well, Jesus never said that abortion or homosexuality was wrong. And so they've narrowed the canon to just what Jesus said, regardless of the rest of the New Testament. Or they'll say the Book of Mormon or human teaching or something is added to uh, the Word of God. So just what this verse says, they reject the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to those who are corrupt and do not believe, nothing is pure. That is, they had a false view of purity. They were emphasizing outward purity and not inward purity. You've got to be circumcised, got to keep all these rules, got to do all this stuff. But there was no heart change, he said, no inner purity. In fact, both their minds and consciences are corrupted. Verse 16, they claim to know God, but by their actions they deny him. There are two ways that we know if you're a Christian. Now, we don't know 100% anybody's heart. There are two ways that we discern that you are a Christian. Number one, your confession. And number two, the fruit of your life. These people had a confession, but the fruit of their life contradicted their confession. And Paul said they don't know God even though they claim to because their fruit of their life contradicts their confession. You need both. You need to confess Jesus as Lord and you need to live it. And that's the evidence of that. They're detestable, disobedient, and unfit for doing anything good. There's our key phrase again. Their lack of truth has moved them from being able to do anything good. Your good works are useless if they're not based on truth because they're leading people in the wrong direction. I'm hurrying because I'm way over time here. So let me wrap this up. Let's go back to that phrase, lover of what is good. And there are seven words. This word is a compound word of the word phila. The Greek word, one of the Greek words for love is phila. And you make a compound word by adding something to it. And then you're a something lover. The best illustration I can think of is at Pizza Hut, you can get a meat lovers pizza or a cheese lovers pizza or a pepperoni lovers pizza you love cheese you can get a cheese you know what i'm talking about here you with me okay so there are seven words in the new testament seven of these compound words which one are you which ones are you there's the lover of self that's philautos there's lover of money there's a lover of humanity you're going to recognize some of these words that's philanthropy Philanthropy is a lover of humanity. Uh, uh, there's a lover of wisdom. You know the word philosophy. That's a lover of wisdom. Philadelphia, we got a city named after that, the love of brothers. First three of these are negative. The last four are good. Here's the one that's the key word in the book of Titus. It says, it's in 1.8, where it says that your elder must be one who loves what is good. And what Paul is saying in this last chapter is their hearts and minds are corrupted and they can't do good because they don't love what's good. Folks, the first thing that we got to have is some affection for what is good. What's your passion in life? Is your passion you? Is your passion money? Is your passion pleasure? Or is your passion what is good? And God is the only one who can change your passions. And if we're going to be an influence for good in this world, it begins in our hearts and our passions. We've got to change our passions, and only Jesus can do that. Would you stand with me? We're going to sing a song of invitation. And today, you could come and confess Jesus as Lord of your life. It begins, though, not just by, oh, i got to cuss less, i got to drink less, I need to do this more. It begins by changing your love life. Love God with all your heart and mind and soul, and then you can love your neighbor as yourself. Would you become a lover of what is good?
Would you let God purify your mind and your heart and your desires and your wants? That's how we'll be a force for good in this world. Change in our world happens from the inside out. Government's not going to affect lasting change. Education, as great as it is, Jesus changes people from the inside out. He can change you. Would you come? Would you walk forward? Confess in the Lord of God. Are you hurting and broken within? Overwhelmed by the weight of your sin? Jesus is calling. Have you come to the end of yourself? Oh
First Baptist Church is hosting a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity for the women of our community. It's entitled, She Loves Out Loud. It's a, a global simulcast. There will be amazing music, outstanding speakers, and there will be, we will be praying with women on six different continents and hearing their stories. This is going to be November the 5th, 8.30 to 2 o'clock and it'll be in our gymnasium it's only ten dollars and that includes lunch and some surprises tammy jernigan and her helpers are at the book in front of the bookstore signing up people today i hope that you ladies will stop and sign up i hope you'll encourage others to come and is in our our sermon today this will encourage our passion to do good. Thank you, Bunny. Thanks, Bunny. And she's been doing a great job and several ladies in our church heading up some of these women's ministry events, these emphasis, these gatherings, uh, these opportunities to pray and, and fellowship and that sort of thing. So appreciate the work that they're doing. We're going to pray and uh, be dismissed. And uh, thank you for being here. I remind you about offering on your way out. Uh, and let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your love for us and, and for the the inspiration you give us to do good because you are good, Father. So God, as we um, have been encouraged by these words, as we brought our, uh, our praise and our concerns to you this morning and, and experienced you, I pray that you would just ignite that passion to do good and that you would help us to do good through your church, uh, this body of believers uh, that you have called uh, to, uh, to play out the, the, the purposes that you have for your, your world. So, God, uh, just help us to do that. Uh, I pray that you would just be with our time of connection groups in the next hour. That folks would be get, uh, get involved there, God. Uh, we love you and thank you. Help us to be light in this dark world. And we pray these things in your name. Amen. One, two, three. Oh, come to the altar.